This is True Crime, one-on-one from the Fedora Chronicles, and I'm your host, Eric Render King Fisk. On this episode, Eric Carter Landine from True Consequences. On each episode, I interview true crime podcasters, investigators, and authors to ask them about their motivations. What inspired these people to become determined to do what they do? What are the original cases that gave them their start? And what cases are they working on now? And the cases that keep them going? And what is the holy grail of true crime topics they want to tackle in the future? In this interview with Eric Carter Landine from True Consequences, we talk about true crime in his home state of New Mexico and the cases that he covers on his own podcast. From the intro from his website, Eric Carter Landine was born and raised in New Mexico. As a child, Eric lived in poverty and watched his single mother struggle to make ends meet. When he was five, in 1985, his brother was murdered and the killer was never prosecuted. Because of this, and because of the amount of unsolved or unresolved cases in New Mexico, Eric decided to create a podcast that focuses on crime in his state. The purpose is to bring awareness to the general public about some of the most known and some unknown cases. This is all done with the goal of trying to affect change and leverage public awareness to help drive some of these cases from cold to solved. This will not be done overnight, and it will take the effort of every listener and every member of the public, but together we can make an impact. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Uh, my name is Eric Carter Landine. As you can tell by the show page or the title of this podcast, um, this is uh, Eric from uh, True Consequences. And um, I binged, listened to your uh, your entire catalog of, of, of episodes um, via iTunes. And um, you really have a very unique perspective when it comes to true crime or you've, you found your niche. Yeah. Um, first, tell us a little, tell us a little bit about yourself before we get ahead of ourselves. And how, how, did, how did you get into true crime? That's a great question. So I was born in New Mexico, born and raised. I've lived here my entire life. Um, and I'm a child of the 80s. So I was actually born in 1980, giving away my age here. Yeah. And I grew up watching shows like Unsolved Mysteries. And I was really into that. I just, I loved the stories, you know, of things that were not solved, things that couldn't be explained. Um, I was always fascinated by not just true crime, but even paranormal stuff. And I remember spending hours in the library reading books about ghosts and urban myths and aliens and all that kind of stuff. So it's always been there for me in terms of something I've been interested in. And Along with that, you know, there was a, a personal tragedy that I had. Um, a family member of mine was was murdered, and I always wanted to do something for uh, for my brother. It was my brother who passed away. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to do something to honor him and to help people that are in a situation where maybe they're a victim of crime, but there's been no justice. So that's kind of led me to where I am because. I think it was sometime a couple of years ago, I said, you know, I just need to do something instead of just talking about it. And that's what kind of birthed the idea of, of starting this podcast. 
But now in your specific niche is um, your home state. Uh, mm-hmm. you, ba- you focus on true crime and unsolved uh, mysteries in New Mexico. Uh, right. You know, one of the things that a lot a lot of people have said in some of the forums that I belong to is that they want to do a true crime podcast, but they don't know how to get started. And what and people seem to ask, like, what should be my focus? And and I look at you and the example that you have um, and what you've done. What is it about New Mexico that is? I'm, maybe maybe fascinating isn't the right word. There is something about your state that lends yeah. itself to so much true crime material. There, there's a lot of uh, it's ripe for the storytelling for sure. Right. In, ter- in terms of, you know, uh, true crime and even mysteries. New Mexico has a history of, of strange things, you know, with the Roswell incident. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we were the, the site of some of the first nuclear uh, bomb testing. So there's been a lot of weird things that have happened in our state in, in New Mexico's history. And, you know, and then you, you go back in time and talk about the conquistadors coming through and slaughtering entire tribes of, yeah. of Native Americans. So there's there's just a history, uh, an old history. There's a lot of things, you know, that that can be told even from back then that I'm actually looking forward to doing. Um, but in terms of the state of, of our uh, crime and ju- justice system in New Mexico, we're, we're in a bit of a, a precarious situation right now. And New Mexico's always had issues with poverty, um, with, you know, economic situations. We've always had issues with crime because of that. You know, we are probably one of the the poorest states in in the country. And we often rank really low on things like education, um, child welfare, all of those things, which is not something to be proud of. And and I think that's part of why I felt motivated to address the specific issues that are facing New Mexico, because I think that the more we talk about it, the more the community becomes aware of what's going on, the more that we can really try to make some changes in terms of how we vote, um, in terms of the types of legislation that's crafted, because if the people are informed, then they can start to lend the ear of our local politicians to hopefully start making some changes in our state. Uh, And then in Albuquerque specifically, there's some, I don't wanna get too much into the legislation part of it, but there's a law where Basically, if you're a criminal, even if it's a repeat criminal, and you're not really, you know, at the felony level yet, you get arrested and then you're released until your trial. So what we're finding is that many people just go out and reoffend, and sometimes they escalate. And, and I think that's why we're seeing such an uptick in these horrible tragedies. I think that one of the other things that you have covered, and this is something that my co-host and I have uh, spent a lot of time uh, talking about with our News of the Week show, is um, missing and murdered indigenous women. And this has sort of yeah. been an epidemic that it's, it's not been talked about. I, I don't think that it, should, it, it hasn't been talked about enough. And it's sort of like only until recently people have been specifically talking about this as it's a real genuine problem. Um, it's a huge problem. Yeah. Now, what if, 
in your in your words, what what exactly is going on, and what why is it that so many indigenous women are being abducted and, and murdered? How did this How did this all start, and how far back do we want to go? Well, you know, in my most recent episode, I did interview uh, Cheyenne Antonio from the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, and and she took it back 500 years. Um, to the colonization of the United States. And, you know, you talk about things like the Trail of Tears, where thousands of Native people died. You know, so it's not, it's, it's something, unfortunately, that the communities of Native American people are used to, um, which is not a good thing. Um, they shouldn't have to be used to that. So I think we're facing a number of problems, and we could speculate about what's causing it all day you know there's been speculation that there may be several serial killers operating in the in the tribal areas uh there's been a lot of speculation about potential sex traffickers which i think is is valid um and then there's also intimate partner abuse which occurs pretty regularly in tribal lands unfortunately Mm -hmm. um so the issue itself is super complicated because uh Tribal lands are basically autonomous to govern themselves as they see fit to a certain extent. And because of that, uh, there becomes problems with jurisdictional overreach uh, from, you know, state agencies, city agencies, federal agencies. And it gets really complicated and it really becomes a who, who gets to deal with this. And unfortunately, a lot of times the tribal government is is left to deal with it, which they have the autonomy to, but sometimes they don't have the resources and that creates a recipe for disaster. And what do you think that we should be doing? And when I mean, we, I mean, everybody in the rest of the United States, what, what, what more should we be doing? Because this is a problem that, I mean, these are human beings within the borders of the United States. I mean, these these are, I mean, they're, they're people, I mean, and, and they're being abducted and they're, and, and they're being trafficked. Yeah. And, 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 and according to your, your, um, uh, your guest in this episode, she said that it's like um, some of these kids are being trafficked by their own loved ones, like their parents. And I'm just, and, and, they're do, and they do it out of desperation. Yeah. And um, sort of like not to brag about doing my homework, but, um, uh, but there's a statistic that's, that frightened the hell out of me. And it was like, and this is, this is true of all of the United States. Mm-hmm. Just about um, half a million people are reported missing each year. And while a lot of those people do, they do show up, they, you know, they somehow it's like they took a wrong turn and, um, and, and they got lost for a while or they just right. decided to just unplug and just, just leave and not tell anybody and come back and say, oh, I'm sorry. I thought you knew I was taking a little vacation. Um, the majority of those people do turn out to be okay or some of them did have an accident many and entirely but there are some, there are people in the country that disappear and they're never heard of again and the numbers mm-hmm. are staggering but what's even more disturbing is we don't have exact figures right and, well, uh, and apparently a lot of these people are are, are are disappearing from native american lands or indigenous lands yeah reservations Yep. So, and my question to you is, is that what more should we be doing to, to stop this? So I think that if, if it's something that's happening in, in your neck of the woods, you know, whether you are 
uh, an indigenous person or not, um, pay attention, you know, talk about it with people, get the, get the word out, let people know what's going on, um, in whatever way you can. I think that's the first step. And then the second step needs to be, uh, holding our legislators accountable because we're running into issues where a lot of this information that we have, we know is underreported because sometimes as you can imagine, different agencies don't communicate with each other, especially when you're talking about a tribal government versus a state or local government. Um, sometimes they may not communicate and they may not share information. And sometimes the tribal government may not have the resources to be able to adequately track this data. So a lot of the numbers that we see, which are high, uh, I believe are, are significantly higher. So <clears throat> there's no national database for this. And I think that's probably the first step is if we had some sort of database where everybody could input their loved ones that are missing, um, we would get a better picture of what was going on. And maybe we'd be able to send out, you know, national alerts for people to, to be on the lookout for their missing loved ones. It's not an easy fix. And I don't think there's anything that that we can do other than creating more awareness at this point and, and really trying to work on fixing the laws so that there can be justice for these missing and murdered women and girls. Yeah. One of the things that you had mentioned earlier um, in this is that you also have covered other crimes. What other, um, what other true crimes have you covered on your podcast that's special to New Mexico? Yeah. Um, well, the first one I did was a horrible one. I'm sure if you listen to it, you agree with that. Yeah. Um, so actually the the podcast was named after the town where this happened um the town is called the town was called truth or consequences it's still called that mm -hmm. and um true consequences was named after that and the story is about the toy box killer who is the most notorious serial rapist and presumed serial killers in new mexico's history and by his own admission to one of his accomplices uh, David Parker Ray claimed to have been doing this, abducting and, and murdering women for over 40 years. Holy crap. <clears throat> so um, I wouldn't call it a, a good story. It's definitely a horrible story. And, right. and the details are, are insane. Uh, but it's it's something that really shook the entire state of New Mexico. I think prior to that, uh, our state was a little bit naive. Um, we weren't experiencing things in the 70s like California and, uh, you know, uh, northern, northwestern U.S. Uh, we weren't experiencing that rash of serial killing. This was the first time that we'd ever experienced anything like that. And it really shook our community to the core. Yeah, that, that does seem to happen when you have an unsolved case like this. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, wanna, I would like to be able to pick your brain for a second about the, the toy box killer. Sure. Uh, what do you, without spoiling your, your show, mm. um, or that specific episode, what mm -hmm. do you think made the killer who he was? What makes a serial killer? You know, that's, I think that's something that true crime listeners and, and enthusiasts debate in their heads and amongst each other all the time. You know, what was the turning point? What caused this to happen? I think there were several things that happened in David Parker's life that led to him uh, being who he was. His father certainly did not help make the situation any better. Um, 
as as with most serial killers, David Parker Ray experienced neglect and abuse, and um, really didn't have a great childhood. And that's not to say that people who go through that necessarily are going to become serial killers. So it's really, you know, I, I'm not a psychologist. Right. <laughs> I, I don't I don't understand what drives uh, serial killers, but I can tell you that his father certainly helped uh, m- help make him who he was. Because I was just looking at um, I was just looking at his Wikipedia page mm-hmm. and um, he had like zero murder convictions, but six total suspected victims. Um, and, and you look at you look at it, somebody like the Unabomber and it was um, like people when people read his letters on online, meaning meaning Ted Kaczynski, there are family mm-hmm. members who said, this is it. This is my brother. This is it. And as far as uh, David Parker Ray, what what finally brought him down? Um, a really amazing, strong woman. Her name is Cynthia Vigil Jaramillo. She escaped from him in 1999 and is the reason that he was caught. And I interviewed her in episode, I believe, six um, of season one. So uh, that's an amazing story. It's a difficult story to get through because yeah. she gets very... Uh, in depth and very detailed about what happened to her, but her courage and her strength really are what brought him down. Another thing I wanted to um, uh, talk to you about is that there's also a lot of mysticism in um, New Mexico. Yeah. How much does that play into your coverage of true crime? Um, How much paranormal um, speculation do you get into on your podcast? Um, well, I love, I love the paranormal. It's, it's always fascinated me. Uh, I'm not sure whether I believe a lot of it, but, uh, you know, I try to throw in a, an episode or two about something paranormal every now and then just to break it up because yeah. it does get a little, um, tough talking about murder all the time. Right. It, yes. <laughs> it does wear so, you down. Yeah. So I try to do that mostly for me. Uh, you know, I don't know if my listeners really care about the paranormal that much, but, uh, yeah. but I do. So I do it for me. <laughs> That's it. That's the point. That's I mean, you have to do the podcast for yourself first. Right. Or you'll never do it. Right. I mean, you know, not to not to sound selfish or anything like that. And maybe we'll get into this a little a little bit later. But there are so many people that I speak to who say, um, I want to do a podcast, but I don't know what I want my podcast to be about. And it's kind of like, no, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. (laughs) You need to have a topic that you're passionate about. I don't care what that topic is. Exactly. I'd I'd like it to be about true crime or the paranormal. I mean, but but if that's not your thing, that's not your bag. Like if you're into knitting, I'm sure you can start a, a, a podcast on knitting. Or or Beanie Baby collections. And I'm not, I'm not telling people to go out and start a podcast on Beanie Babies. I'm just using that <laughs> as an example. But there is, it's kind of like a chicken or the egg kind of thing with podcasting. Whereas yeah. you have to have a topic that you're passionate about. Like which comes first, your passion for doing a podcast or your passion for this other topic that your podcast is about. And and I maintain that you have to have some knowledge of something, yeah, before you get started. Uh, now, if you were not doing a podcast on 
um, on true crime, my guess is that you would be doing it your, your podcast more on the paranormal. Yeah, it it would either be that or or comedy. Honestly, that that's something I didn't know about you. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I've always been kind of a class clown, so well. <laughs> that's and that's it. Podcasters are also attention seekers mm-hmm. as well. I mean, it's true. Um, I was, I mean, I was not a very good class clown. I was more of a smart ass, but well, you know, too. it was all like, look at me, everybody. Look at me. I'm more important than the teacher right now. There is that kind of thing. There is, um, that little bit of, of, of narcissism that goes into and a good, happy narcissism. I hope, I think. Yeah. Um, hopefully, but you're now getting back to your state. Yeah. Your state is also synonymous with one of the, perhaps one of the greatest paranormal unexplained phenomenon stories in the past 100 years. And I'm obviously talking about Roswell, New Mexico. Yeah. Now, I, I don't think you've done an episode on Roswell, New Mexico. Not yet. But I, now that it makes it sound like you're thinking about it or you're already starting. So, well, I have I have uh, I have three seasons planned out already. So. Oh, <laughs> see that's yeah. that's that's the, that's the thing that's a that's a difference between between you and me. I I just just one week at a time. That's all I can. But the, you have three seasons all planned out. Now, what is what do you think about Roswell, New Mexico? What what do you think happened at Roswell? Um, I don't know. I. It's it's hard for me to to say because it was well before my time. No, me too. <laughs> uh, but you know, there's been some weird stuff that happens in New Mexico. So I I don't doubt that they saw something. And we've always we've always been, um, you know, a site for military testing of all different kinds. And you know, it could it could have been something like that. It could have been something extraterrestrial. It, it's hard to to know, and and I'm looking forward to digging into that deeper and and figuring out what happened there. Um, you know, there is an episode on my on this season with two hunters who claim to have seen aliens, and yep. and I don't know if I, you know, at, at first I was very skeptical going into the interview, and after I left the interview, I felt unsure just the level of detail and certainty that the hunters kind of explained it just it just it just didn't sit with me i just i wasn't as skeptical as i was walking into it uh one of the things i was sort of on the fence um uh, on on the issue of roswell one of the things that i had somebody had sort of explained to me is that the 501st Air Base uh-huh. near Roswell, New Mexico, mm-hmm. what is, is, is the air unit that was also like the responsible for nuclear, the very few nuclear weapons that we had in the end of the 1940s, early 1950s. This is like the top, yeah. the upper, this is like the cream of the crust. The, yeah. the, these are the, like the, the top, the uppermost echelon people in mm-hmm. the Air Force, like the birth of the American Air Force really sort of began with the 501st. Yep. And these, I mean, these were not dummies. These were not people who were gullible. 
and right. somebody had had said and and this this gets into a wild conspiracy theory um after the end of world war ii there is operation paperclip where we gathered up all of the experimental aircraft and all the experimental projects that the germans were working on um throughout the 30s and 40s and a lot of this had to do with unusual strange flying craft that was like leading edge especially like jet flying wings sure and somebody had come up with this crazy theory and i thought it held water for a long time that um a test pilot said hey let's see how this flying wing works and took it out for a spin not realizing that they didn't put it together correctly or they weren't finished putting it together mm -hmm. and we crashed and, 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 and died in the deserts of New Mexico. Yeah. And people were like, well, we need to come up with a story that explains all of this. And somebody had said, well, why don't we just say it was like a flying saucer, a UFO from Mars or something like that. And they, so they, they, they sort of ran with it. And the reason why that they, they, they're sort of like saying it's, they're pushing this sort of, they're pushing but not pushing. They're this, they had this strict denial. It's because they, right. they didn't want the Russians to know uh, that we had this advanced technology that, that the Nazi scientists were working on. Um, and then, uh, and I, and, and I can't believe this is the 10th anniversary of the book, Witness to Roswell, unmasking the government's big, biggest cover-up. And, and we actually had Tom uh, Carey on an, uh, an episode of the Metaphysical Connection here on the Fedora Chronicles. And uh, he has a very convincing w way of explaining. He's, he's very authoritative when he says this. Uh, when, he, when he says that it's definitely something that the government did not want people to know the government yeah. spent a lot of time drilling it into people's heads that you do not talk about this you do not say anything about this i think it's clear that that's definitely the case yep and i and i think that that everybody in new mexico realizes that so whether it's alien whether it's military tech that didn't want to be disclosed um i think we all know that that there was a, a cover up there it's, yeah and then, of course, you know, Roswell being a small town, word gets around. You can't keep things like that quiet in a yeah. town like that. Have you ever, have you been to Roswell? <laughs> yes. What do you think? Like, like, t tell me about the town. Um, it's, it's an interesting town. It's a, <clears throat> it's kind of rural, you know. I mean, they have, the population, I think, is under 100,000, 100,000 people. And... Um, it's a small community. There's a military institute for kids. So it's like a boarding school, military boarding school mm -hmm. there. Um, <clears throat> of course, there's a lot of military, uh, people that live there. It's, there's a lot of farmland. Um, it's a lot like, uh, Eastern Texas. I'm sorry, Western Texas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, it's very dry, very flat. Um, but it also gets very cold there in the winter. Um, yeah, I don't, it's, it's a small town in New Mexico. So if, if there was going to be something that you would be hiding, that would, that would, that would be it. Um, that would be the place where you would hide it. Do you have any, um, 
I mean, I, I know that Roswell is, is, is in Nevada, but do you also have, not, not Roswell, I'm sorry, Area 51. Area 51 mm-hmm. is in Nevada. But, I mean, mm-hmm. as somebody who's into the paranormal um, and unexplained phenomenons, like, mm-hmm. like, did you have any, did you want to join the, 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 the people who wanted to rush Area 51 to see what was inside? Or, or, or what did you think? What did you What did you think about that when you said, well, "Hey, hey, everybody, we're we're going to rush Area Fifty One. They can't shoot all of us." Which I I think I mean I I honestly think that they could have if they wanted to. Oh, but, yeah, for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I value my life, <laughs> so I definitely wasn't on board to to rush Area Fifty One. And um, you know, I grew up in a small town that there's a a military uh, missile testing site on the other side of the mountain Mm -hmm. uh, from the town where I live. And when I was a kid, my cousin and I were very mischievous and uh, my grandparents lived really close to the mountains. So we would go hiking in the mountains. And uh, one day we saw a fence and a gate and uh, do not trespass sign by order of the government. And my cousin had the brilliant idea to hop the fence, which we did. And uh, within Probably five minutes, a helicopter came around the mountain uh, with a, a machine gun pointed at us and a loudspeaker telling us to leave. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want to go through that again. That was pretty traumatizing. <laughs> so you actually have you you have your Roswell story, and that's probably as much as um, that's probably as far as you're going to go with it. But I think it's amazing how people seem to think that somehow they're special. Like somehow they think that they can intrude on, on uh, Area Fifty One. Uh, they think that somehow it's yeah. like they they can intrude on Area Fifty One and nothing's going to happen to them. And and then people hear stories about like they won't even let you get to the gate without right. there being some kind of sign of of military force. Right. Um, one of the things I also wanted to ask you, um, and and this is a question that I like to ask all other true crime podcasters. Is like, is there one story that sort of that every true crime podcaster ought to tackle at least once? Well, I think that really depends on like for me, that story was going to be David Parker Ray. Yep, it just had to be. Um, So it, it really depends on your format, I think. So if you're more of a all around general true crime, then. You know, I would probably say the Golden State Killer is one that everybody should look into because it's a crazy story. Right. And, and it's insane. It's not something I'm ever going to cover because it's not New Mexico. Um, but I think that that story is just horrifying and also very interesting in terms of how long he was able to elude capture. Just give us a quick rundown of what of, of who the, the Golden the golden what you said the golden state kill the golden gate golden state killer yeah the golden yeah. state killer he was also known as the east area rapist um he was also known as the original night stalker and he started in the sacramento area and in uh, surrounding communities by breaking and entering into homes and and raping women um and also burglarizing and then he escalated to murder and be he went all over California. So he was in Irvine, California. He was in the Bay area. Um, he, you know, he was just everywhere. And it, it was, I, I want to say like 30 years before yeah. he was caught. And it wasn't until 
the the cool part of the story is is when uh, the investigators started looking into uh, ancestral DNA, and and that's really how they found him. So with sites like Ancestry and all this, um, there's actually a public database, and so they were able to match his DNA to some familiar familial DNA, and that's ultimately how he was caught. Yeah, because the, looking again, look looking at at uh, his page on the internet, um, uh, uh, looking at his profile, um, Joseph James uh, D'Angelo, mm-hmm. uh, the Golden State Killer, is a serial killer, serial rapist, and burglar who committed at least 13 murders, more than 50 rapes, and over 100 burglaries in California from 1974 to 1986. Yep, and, and then he stopped. And he stopped. Yeah. And he wasn't, he wasn't captured until... Uh, last year, April 24th, 2018. There are a lot of people who are not crazy about the idea of of doing something like Ancestry.com and submitting your DNA because it's creating a giant database. And like if you committed a crime, you might be caught, you know, and this this is a violation of of the Constitution. I'm trying to figure out what is it? Is it is it a violation of, of the Fourth Amendment? People are saying and right. it was just like, uh, what do you think? What do you think of that? Do you think that all of these, this modern technology and 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 using DNA is is always such a great? I mean, it's great that we're catching killers. Yeah. But it, do do you th- do you think that this could bring us down to a very sort of dangerous slippery slope? Whereas, like with the technology now, that's like they you could they you could be nailed for almost anything. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think it's it's both sides of that. And, you know, to, to be fair to Ancestry and 23andMe and, and those other sites, they, they never released any data. They were asked multiple times during this case and they refused. And it's part of their terms of use that they, would, they will not release that data to authorities, to law enforcement. Um, because it is a private organization, they really have no reason to do that. And they, they can't, really can't be compelled to do that. So... What was used was the public database, which is GEDmatch. So this is completely voluntary, mm-hmm. and and people can decide to upload their DNA profile to GEDmatch voluntarily, and that's up to them. And if they do that, then then the authorities can access that data, and and use that to catch killers. But it is it is risky, it is scary. But I think anything new like that is scary. Uh, we've never had anything like this until recently. Right. And uh, it is your private, like your blueprint for life. <laughs> so yeah. I, I understand people's reticence to part with that information. Yeah. Um, and it, it's definitely not for everybody, but for those that are willing to, um, you know, it, it could help. Yeah. I think it would be um sort of terrifying if, if you know um like my wife would say hey we i, I get you a, a dna test for for your birthday let's let's see where your heritage is because I, I i grew up disconnected from my mother's side of the family and my father's side of the family i don't mm-hmm. know much about my heritage i don't I, re- I i really don't know much at all about my ancestors all I know is that a couple couple of them um, uh, uh, got off the boat, at, you know, after arri- arriving from Ireland, and Norway, and Wales, um, and I have some Native American blood as well. 
Um, and, and my wife is curious about, you know, because the thing is, we have kids and she wants to know more about where they came from. Sure. And I'm kind of like, I, I don't need the knock on the door, you know, from the police saying, hey, listen, um, we're, we're, we're looking for uh, your, we, one of your relatives. We're looking for your dad. Right. Um, the DNA, <laughs> your DNA is is somehow linked to this unsolved crime. Or do you, do you know what your uncle is? Or do you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think that that would be a little sort of nerve wracking. Sure. But then yeah. but then again, if it could if, if it could bring some other people's families, if a, some other victims family, a bit of peace, I'm I, my, I'm slowly being broken down. I will probably do it someday. Well, I always tell my family that they better not commit any serious crimes because if I find out about it, I'll be the first one to turn them in. (laughs) (laughs) You'll be the first one to turn them in and then turn it into a podcast. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So here's um, here's how I nailed my uncle, uh, my uncle Jack. And this is this. This is the story. On True Crime One on One, I'll be interviewing my uncle Jack and and seeing where did it all go wrong? What did what did my grandparents do to deserve this? <laughs> yeah, I, I and and uh, and that's I wanted to just sort of you know sort of talk to you about just podcasting in general. Sure. And one of the things that really comes up a lot, and when I tell people that um, my hobby and hopefully someday my uh, my full time occupation is podcasting. Um, two questions always come up. And the first one is, how do you do your research? <laughs> now, we, you and I, we, we have access to the internet. The internet yeah. is not the end all and be all. Right. Tell me what you think is the importance of libraries. I already have my answer, but I got to hear yours. Yeah. Um, books are really where I get the bulk of my information. And uh, it's, you know, I grew up in libraries. Yeah. My, my mom was a single mom. And uh, sometimes I would just hang out in the library all day long. Yeah. And read. And um, it's always been a passion of mine. So uh, books have definitely helped a lot with my research. I think that libraries are a huge, uh, important resource. And you know, and maybe it's just because I'm old now that uh, I still think that they're important, even though we have the internet, because the internet is lacking sometimes. Yeah. The bulk of the information I got for the toy box killer was from a book. And, you know, there's information on online, but a lot of it was inaccurate. And, and that's kind of the problem that you run into. And that's not to say that books are infallible, because I certainly believe that some authors may print inaccurate information as well. Yeah, they sure do. But, but um, you know, I found them to be, at least for, for me, more of an accurate source of information. Because the thing is, is that book writers have a greater standard. They have a higher standard yeah. than those of us podcasters and bloggers and webmasters have. Because yeah. um, they have to answer to a higher authority, specifically their editors and their publishers and their shareholders of those publishing companies. Right. One of the things that I've also noticed, especially in this day and age, is that with thanks to social media and email and every author, every author and podcaster has got to have their own website where they're able to publish their show notes. 
without yeah. that without fail. If you're going to, and I, this is for the other people who are listening to this podcast. If you want to do a podcast, you have to have a website first. Yep. yep. Claim your URL and start, and, and that's where you publish your show notes. And mm-hmm. mention, hey, and mention the show page at the beginning and end of every pod, uh, every episode of your podcast. Um, you can actually reach out to authors, um, and you could uh, you could say to an author, "Hey, would you would you like to be on my podcast?" Ninety yeah. percent of them will say, "Absolutely, I'd love to." How do you want to do this? Do you want to do this on via Skype or by phone? Mm-hmm. Almost, I mean, I've never had an author say, no, I'm not interested in doing your podcast. Right. Um, now, another great source people don't talk about is the historical society. Um, do you belong to your local historical society? I don't, but I've, you're making me feel like I should. Yeah, I really, I, I really think that you should. I think everybody, I mean, because every region has its own historical society and the state has a historical society. Um, that I that is something that I can't I, I can't uh, say this enough because and and, though, and and that right there, I mean you, the historical society will actually help you get guests to your podcasts as well. Yeah. So and they're and they're great about that and library and librarians have the gift to gab as well. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah, they they will tell you things about local history that nobody else knows. Sorry about that. No, it's okay. I didn't notice anything. Oh, good. Okay. So, um, so what I wanted to ask you and, and sort of wrap the show up with is I wanted to ask you about the future of your podcast. And, and I know that you said that you had um, something about Roswell that you wanted to talk about. You want to do a show on Roswell. What else do you have going on um, uh, planned for the future? Yeah. Yeah. Um... Well, I'm going to continue working with, you know, people that that want to tell their stories. And I have a few lined up, uh, cold cases, family members that want justice for their murdered loved ones. And that's definitely going to be coming out this season. Uh, There's going to be an episode coming out on Monday, which is going to be about the New Mexico prison riot, which became the worst prison riot in the U.S. history, um, and yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot more coming. The West Mesa Bone Collector is a, an episode that's coming up this season as well, as well as a, uh, more interviews. That's great. And uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you here, yeah, because um, one of the things that I have noticed about the true crime uh, community is that everybody is so open and friendly. Everyone, everybody wants to help promote everybody else's work. And that really sort of seems ironic because the subject matter that we cover, um, cause I mean, we're, I mean, we're talking about murders, murderers, thieves, serial killers, serial rapists. And the, the community is just so uh, people are falling all over each other to help other, to help other people. This is yeah. such a warm community. Uh, in an open community, how, how do you how do you explain that? How do you uh, how how do you yeah how do you explain that? Well, I think that if if somebody's on the outside looking in, we probably look like you know like the freaky goth kids sitting <laughs> yeah. at the lunch table in school, uh, <laughs> and 
and I don't think that's necessarily true. I'm sure there are some lovely goth podcasters talking about <laughs> true crime. Yep. Um, but, you know, I think we, we are seen a little bit as outsiders because, you know, we, we focus on and, and really love looking into and learning about this stuff. And I think for me personally, I can't speak for everybody else, but a, as a, a person who's experienced violence um, and, and horrible violence in my household, and really survived that and became stronger because of it. I think that these, for me, helped me to really alleviate some anxiety about how scary the world is and about how crazy people can be. And by acknowledging that it exists and by by bringing it to light, it, it becomes less scary and it becomes more matter of fact and uh, I think deep down, you know, true crime people have big hearts. They're empathetic. They care. They feel for the victims. And that's yeah. why they want to see justice. In fact, I think most true crime aficionados really crave justice more than the horrible stories. Yeah, that's an, that's one of the things that I have noticed as well, because the thing is, we all want to be sleuths. We all want to be detectives. Mm-hmm. We all want to ha- have a part in solving these crimes, yeah. a- and that's and w- that also gets to the, like the biggest misconception. What do you think is the biggest a misconception about true crime podcasters and our listeners? And I think that you covered that to a, to to some extent. Yeah, I think that people think we're freaks, or even maybe like really get into horrible things that happen to people. Um, and, and that's really not true. It's, it's more about, uh, how can you alleviate your own anxiety? <laughs> number yeah. one, while also helping to, uh, bring some of this stuff to light. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is, I'd like, I mean, I, I wonder what's the statistic, how many actual true crimes have been solved because of podcasters like yourself? I, I'm sure I, it's I small. Yep. <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure that there have been some crimes that we've been able yeah. to help solve. Yeah. I think so. Um, yeah. I'd love to see that go up. That would be amazing. Yep. Final question. I'd like okay. you to give a shout out to the people who help you behind the scenes. Who is it that helps you um, uh, with your podcast? Yeah. Um, so it is, it is essentially a one man show, but I do have a lot of support and a lot of help. Um, my partner, Kayline, my son, Kai, um, all of my friends that have really endured me talking incessantly about my podcast days in and days out without stop. (laughs) Um, my mother who, uh, so graciously is willing to talk about my brother's story with me in an upcoming episode. Yeah. And, you know, and then the, the countless other podcasters that have, have helped me out. Uh, she Sleuth, Perhaps It's You, True Crime by the Book. Um, there's too many for me to name. Uh, Believer Skeptic Podcast. Yep. <laughs> there's just been a lot of love and I've been embraced by the true crime community and I'm so grateful for that. You know what I am too. And, I've, I, I, and I'm kicking myself because I didn't start this project sooner. But yeah. I mean, it's... Um, 
I've been podcasting for, for, for 10 years and it's been just basically about just doing kind of like a news of the week or just covering pop culture and current events. And only until recently I said, you know, how come they don't have a podcast about true crime podcasts? I don't, I, what makes these people tick? And when I said, Hey, who wants to do an interview? You just, you just jumped right at it, you know, (laughs) and I, I appreciate that. But I, I mean, and I think that you're right. I mean, we a we do this for ourselves yeah because we have i mean if i didn't love doing this i wouldn't have invested all this time and money in, mm-hmm. into doing this um oh my wife is going to kick my ass if she finds out how much i how much i spent on a brand new <laughs> yeah, <we'll> tell her <laughs> on, on a, i i because the, the the microphone is so heavy that the old um uh uh mic boom kept tipping over so i had to go and i had to get another one um, a beefier one. And, um, and like I said, I'm always upgrading. Um, but the thing is, is like, I, I also do this not just, not just for myself. Because, I mean, I, I could go weeks without doing this. Mm-hmm. I do it on a weekly basis, at least, for the listeners, for yeah. the subscribers. Yeah. And it's, an, and it's an endorphin rush that people just don't seem to realize when you have somebody who says, hey, um, you did a really great episode. Yeah. But what's even better is when people said that was an, that was an okay, mediocre episode. You missed a lot of facts. When come, can, can I come on and we can talk? Mm. That's also a rush. That's awesome. Where you have people who actually say they want to be guests on your show. Yeah. So for sure. is there anything else that you wanted to share with my listeners and give a final plug to, to, to your podcast one more time? Well, I, I want to just say if you're into true crime, you know, support, support indie podcasts, support the little guys, uh, cause they're all trying to make it work and, uh, your support would mean so much to them. Number one. Um, the other thing I want to say is if you are feeling very giving today is giving Tuesday. Um, I would encourage people to donate to end the backlog, which is, uh, a fund to help end the rape kit backlog in the United States. So those are two things that yeah. I just want to throw out there right away. Um, yeah, True Consequences, It's it's been a, I want to say fun project, but that, I don't feel like that's maybe appropriate. Uh, it's been a good project, and I'm loving where it's going. I'm excited by, you know, the, the support. You know, I was able to be on two different newscasts this weekend, which was exciting. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the local community has really embraced this project. So, um, if you're interested in paranormal, if you're interested in true crime and, you know, New Mexico has a wealth of it and I will continue providing that to people. And, you know, if, if anybody knows any stories that they want to have told on my podcast, I'm happy to, to bring those up as well and, and even have people talk about stories on my, on my show. So, yeah. uh, my website's trueconsequences.com, and you can find my podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. That's that's wonderful. Eric, thank you so much for being a guest on my podcast. And, and like I had said before we started recording, uh, I want you to come back again. And when you, when you have a mini-series that you want to talk about, or there's something that you want to share, or you need help with from our listeners, just send me a quick email and and say hey i got something else i want to talk about and um you're always welcome here thanks eric i appreciate it all right 
And I, and seriously, okay. I'm thinking, I'm, th- I'm thinking about like changing the name. It's like true crime, Eric to Eric. I think that hey, that would be a cool name. <laughs> I'm okay with that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> this has been true crime one-on-one from the Fedora Chronicles. Find out more about the Fedora Chronicles and episodes of True Crime One-on-One by visiting our website, thefedorachronicles.com. That's where you can find our show notes, past episodes, and articles. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by simply searching for The Fedora Chronicles on those platforms. Don't forget to join our group on Facebook after you found it so you can keep up with what we'll be talking about on the next episode. Facebook and Twitter and our email address, FedoraChronicle at Google.com, are great ways to drop us a line with comments and show topic suggestions. We might even read your comment on the air on a future episode. Support the show by contributing to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Fedora Chronicles. For a mere dollar a month, you get early access to the podcast, updates on what we're doing. For $5 a month, you get all that and a t-shirt or coffee mug. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you to all of our listeners who are already contributing. You can also support the show and show off your incredible, impeccable taste by buying our merch at zazzle.com slash Fedora Chronicles. Exactly 12.5% of every sale goes to keeping this show and everything else on the Fedora Chronicles on the air, or online as it were. The theme song for this show is Hopeful Cello by Cosmo Lawson from Premium Beat, which provided the license for the song. The Fedora Chronicles podcasts, including True Crime 101, is edited and produced by me, Eric Renderking-Fisk. Copyright, The Fedora Chronicles 2019-2020. All rights reserved.